seats here and we'll get started. We're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 13. And I might just go ahead and read the entire chapter so it's not real long. And the uh, most interesting part is towards the end. So let's go ahead and read the whole thing here. 2 Kings chapter 13. And today we are we are going to be looking, among other things, at the death of Elisha. And the first verse says, In the twenty-third year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, the king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned seventeen years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually to the hand of Haziel, the king of Syria, and to the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel. Then Jehoahaz sought the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria oppressed them. Therefore the Lord gave Israel a savior, so that they escaped from the hand of the Syrians, and the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin, but walked in them, and the Asherah also remained in Samaria. For there was not left to Jehoahaz an army of, of more than fifty horsemen, and ten chariots, and ten thousand footmen. For the king of Syria had destroyed them all, and made them like the dust at threshing. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did in his might, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria, and Jeho- Joash his son reigned in his place. And in the thirty-seventh year of Jeho- Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Je- Jehoahaz, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned sixteen years, and he also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did and the might with which he fought against Amaziah, the king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on his throne. And Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. And some of that we'll see next week when we'll deal a little bit more with what goes on in Second Chronicles that fills in some of these gaps. Now, verse 14. Now, when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness with which he was to die, Joash, the king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. And when he, then he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow, and he drew it, and Elisha laid his hand on the king's hand, and he said, open the window eastward, and he opened it, and then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot, and he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end to them. And he said, take the arrows, and he took them, and he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. And then the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six. Then you would have struck down the Syrians until you have made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. 
So Elisha died and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, so this is obviously sometime later, behold, a marauding band was seen and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Now Haziel, Haziel king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz, Jehoahaz, but the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor had he cast them from his presence until now. When Haziel, king of Syria, died, then Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, the cities that he had taken from Jehoahaz, his father, in war. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. You may be seated. So again, it's kind of interesting just some of the, the ways, some of the prophecies that are given, that they are fulfilled. The, the Bible, I think, you know, loves to point these fulfillments out. And there's obviously good lessons for us to learn when we think about that. And we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, last week we saw Joash as an example of a Christian who does not finish well or doesn't finish at all. Uh, and this is, of course, uh, an earlier one where he's this, this in the southern kingdom where uh, he starts off well. He remembers repairing the, t- the temple for years, and then as soon as there's an invasion, he just gives it all away. Uh, as we say there in the second point, uh, the temple officials were held accountable for how they handled their contributions, and so we uh, would learn from that that uh, it is not some. There is to be accountability that you don't just uh, let people handle money any way they want to, whether it be in your church or anywhere else, and with no accountability. Joash needed Jehoiada, the high priest, or he couldn't serve the Lord. It was not his faith, but somebody else's faith. Clearly. Because as soon as Jehoiada dies, why he kind of falls apart spiritually. Um, so in this chapter, we have the reigns of his son, uh, uh, the, the northern uh, Israel at this time. What was going on then, Jehoahash and Joash, um, or sometimes referred to as Jehoash. Nothing much had changed as far as the spirituality of the northern kingdoms. Uh, Syria at this time was a rising power, and so what you find, you kind of wonder why there are times where they seem to be able to handle Syria very well, times where Syria seems to overpower them, and it's because, of again, sometimes you, when you read the history books, you, you kind of get a better idea of what's going on. When Assyria is concentrating on Syria, uh, they leave Israel alone. When Assyria is off somewhere else with another country and leaving Syria alone, then Syria can turn their attention on Israel and there's conflict. So that's why you have these uh, times of peace and, and war. Uh, in verse 4, it's typical of these kings was their willingness to call on the Lord only when their gods don't seem to help them as we see him do. And the Lord gives them a savior which is unnamed, uh, but he gives them somebody who helps them and so he answers his prayer, and then, of course, but it doesn't matter. They still are worshiping uh, the uh, false gods, those golden calves that uh, Jeroboam put up. 
They've got a the, the, the female counterpart of Baal still sitting right there in, in the capital Samaria. So it, you know, it's no wonder, of course, that God eventually has to bring judgment upon them. <clears throat> but you can see that his overriding desire uh, is uh, he's a, he's a God who loves to show mercy and to restore the relationship. But again, when uh, the, the people will have none of it, then that's what they get. Um. Of course, in verse 14, we come to the death of Elisha, and some have inferred from that because of the location here in verse 14 that he's the unnamed Savior, but there's no evidence of that. Some see in verse 17 that uh, Jehoash's victory with the arrows and all that was what they're referring to, although that seems to be a later time. So uh, that's uh, it's, it's questionable. I think it's just an unnamed Savior at this point, whoever this might be, some someone who helped them in the, in the battles. Um, so we're certainly forced to acknowledge the hardness of these people's hearts. And, and one of the things that the Old Testament does so well is to show us that unless the Holy Spirit changes the heart and regenerates it and softens it and writes his laws upon it, uh, the natural man is incapable of loving the Lord, no matter what God does for them, or no matter what miracles they see, and so forth. I was reading about, there was a, uh, a black woman who was a slave in uh, the Indian Ocean, on some island over there in the Indian Ocean. This is years ago. And uh, she had a daughter. And she, this slave was able to somehow work and uh, make enough money to purchase her daughter's freedom. So her daughter no longer was a slave. And so she was able to walk around with shoes on, which a slave was not allowed to. And uh, But evidently, for whatever reason, she still lived in the house in some way, perhaps it's just as a, as a paid servant, I guess, or whatever. But she was living in the house there with the master and her mother. And one day her mother... Uh, comes in and sits down beside her, uh, as mothers would do in an affectionate way, and the uh, her daughter yells at her and says, how dare you, a slave, would sit down beside me. You stand up and get out of here. You're, you're overstepping your bounds. And so you, 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 it's kind of an example of what's going on here. You, this girl who only is free uh, because of her mother's sacrifice and love turns right around now and abandons her mother, in a sense. And that's kind of what Israel's doing here, is, is God has redeemed them, and they are looking to other uh, gods. And so uh, it's just a really pathetic picture, but we ought to be careful as Christians that we, we, that's why it's so important for us to keep our love for the Lord strong and to pursue him, because he's our only hope, and he's the one who's given himself for us. And it's 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 the height of sin to to abandon the Lord as Israel did here. But to understand, I think, the rest of the chapter when it comes to um, Elisha's um, death in particular, we have to uh, keep in mind, uh, I think that the key to it is when Joash runs in when Elisha is dying. And does, it, does anybody remember the last time this phrase was used uh, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen. Horsemen. This is what Elisha calls out when Elijah was 
was caught up in the whirlwind and carried away in uh, some chariots of some sort. Uh, you know, his tra- uh, translation, and, uh, and Elisha was left then to uh, be the prophet. And so, both it was used then at both of their uh, not. Of course, Elijah didn't die, but at both of the time when they were taken away from Israel. But the phrase, uh, I don't think Eli- Elisha, when he calls this out, was was saying was pointing out the fact that uh, these chariots were heavenly chariots because he says you know they are the chariots of in Israel. The chariots of Israel and its horsemen. It doesn't say these are, that's the chariot of God and its horsemen, although in a sense they were. He's referring, I think, just like the king is referring to Elisha, he's referring to Elijah the prophet. Because what is the strength of, of any nation, as it were, and physically speaking? What was the strength of Israel? Well, it would have been in your chariots and your horsemen, which we notice here that the king had was had been decimated to the point where it only had like what fifteen or so uh, chariots, and uh, so here he refers to Elisha as the strength of the country, just as Elijah was in his time, because they were the prophets; they were the ones who were giving light, giving the message from God, and even this man who I think clearly is a, a pagan in a sense, he, he's he's not a believer recognizes and is calling out saying, you know, because the, the, the strength of Israel is about to be taken away. And so uh, he's given a, an object lesson here with the arrows and the bow that, that the Lord is their strength. Uh, and, and of course he's already had that great example given to him in, in the Lord answering their, his prayer with Syria and, and yet uh, he doesn't believe. So I think that's kind of interesting in and of itself. Uh, just I was referring to Second Kings two, where Elisha saw what was going on and said, "My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen." Uh, so I think you have to kind of put those two things together. Um, and of course, one of the things that we have to remember is that you know, not just as Americans, uh, but officially in any situation, but. For America, the, the strength of America is not in the presidency, the military, the economy, things like that. The strength of any nation, of any people, is always the Lord. And so, um, it doesn't mean that the, the government and shouldn't have a defense, shouldn't have an army, and uh, all that is wrong. But to think that that is where, uh, that's what's going to keep us safe, apart from the Lord, is uh, is idolatry and is foolhardy. Of course, that's what they were doing uh, here in Israel, in northern Israel. They, uh, you know, kept thinking that somehow it was their own might or their own ability to pay off their enemy or to pay someone to be their ally. And the Lord hated that. And the Lord, you know, brought misery upon them when they would do that, when they're making these alliances, because they were saying that the Lord is not strong enough to take care of us. And that couldn't be a a grosser sin. And so you you have that. And then, of course, you have uh, Elisha, who is on his deathbed, and yet he's still prophesying and still being served of the serving the Lord. And that's something we want to point out, that, as long as you have life, uh, no matter how weak you might be, um, 
you know, no matter how old you are, you still have uh, usefulness in the kingdom of God if, if God gives you life. Um, Psalm 92.12, the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. So how are they full of sap and bearing fruit in old age? Well, it's, it seems to me that, if nothing else, it's saying by because they declare who the Lord is and what he has done. They, they are a testimony of, of the grace of God. And so it, to me, is, is always uh, a, a good promise to, to latch hold of that you, everybody has an opportunity to be useful and that, never to think that you, you're, you're going to retire from being a Christian or you're going to retire from a, a public, from, from bearing fruit for the Lord. <clears throat> and so it refers here to, to sap. And it is telling us that the amount of physical sap, you might say, has nothing to do with the amount of spiritual sap. And certainly the older you are, the more mature spiritually you should be. And I think there's a sense in which we would have a right to expect more of of the older Christians in some senses. Um, It doesn't mean that the older Christians aren't any less sinful. Uh, I'll just go ahead and testify to that. But our faith and our testimony and our wisdom should be as strong as it ever was as we grow in the Lord. And so we don't see Elisha here telling him to leave him alone, let him die in peace, go find somebody younger. Uh, neither do we find him complaining of the younger generation, which is easy to do sometimes. Uh, but as we're seeing here, the younger generation is just as bad as, or the older generation is just as bad as the younger generation. It's not like it's getting worse. It, it can't get any worse, it doesn't seem like. Um, and also, while, you know, sometimes you can see things progressively downward, I think clearly I can see in some ways a progression downward in our society from when I was younger. Um, not to say that there's less Christians, it's just that there's less Christianized, uh, the pagans are less Christianized as they used to be. But at the same time, regardless of all that, when the, if and when the younger generation do worse in some way, it, it, you almost always have to blame the older generation for, for the, for being raised like that. You know, why is it that, you know, the, the generation in the 50s, for instance, and early 60s, ended up being like they were? Well, it's because their, uh, you know, America after the war was, uh, you know, prospering and, uh, the Lord was being ignored and the parents weren't, uh, you know, of course, ease makes things where people don't care that much and, and, you know, the parents didn't raise them up as they had been raised and so forth. And so when that happens, yeah, things fall apart. So he's not blaming the, the uh, saying that the younger generation is worse as we, as we tend to do. We need to accept our own responsibility. Uh, if we don't raise our children in the Lord, then uh, we shouldn't be surprised if they're in some ways worse than we were in some way or another. But anyway, the, the interesting thing here is um, in verse 16, we see a similar prophecy to the one that we found in chapter 8 where 
Elisha is uh, telling uh, Haziel, uh, you know, that the king was going to recover, and Haziel, but he says, uh, you know, then he says, you're going to be the king, and Haziel kind of does his own thing there. That So here, um, he, he says the Lord is going to uh, fully deliver Israel. Well, it turns out that's not the case, right? Because the king only beat the arrows three times. So the Lord was, was uh, writing this blank check, giving him a blank check. Uh, you know, you can fully defeat Syria. And, uh, so, and so he's, uh, and so he has him beat the arrows on the ground and evidently, you know, he, because he's upset with him, in, in some way, it shows the king had a real lackluster desire about all this. He only does it three times and, and you know, the Bible says, and he stopped. It's like he wasn't interested. He didn't care, something, and, and so, Elisha's upset with him. He says, you should have been beaten it several times. Had you, had you, have you, had you shown a, a desire for the Lord's enemies to be defeated, the Lord would have totally wiped them out. So the prophecy ends up not coming true in it fully because of that. And he only uh, defeats them three times. It doesn't make a complete end to Syria. So, uh, you know, that's certainly an interesting, uh, little, uh, Scenario here, and uh, it, one thing I see in, in all this is that uh, Joash doesn't see his enemies as dangerous as the Lord evidently did, and as Elisha understood them to be. He, he, he seems to be, you know, he's, he fights them, but he's, his heart's not really in it. We're going to see next week that uh, he seems to have much more desire to fight against Judah when the opportunity arises than he does Syria. And uh, he he doesn't cash the check. He doesn't write it write it out to, to pay the bill. You might say. And uh, certainly, there's a parallel there for us to think about. The Lord gives us great and precious promises. We have the Holy Spirit abiding in us, and yet it seems like we don't cash in. We don't we don't use fully use the things. We don't study God's word. We don't we don't put the effort into it that we should. We, we are, we're so busy out in the world, whether it be making money or having a good time or, you know, our hobbies and other things that we don't, we don't seem to care that much that we're growing the Lord, that we're honoring Him, that we have a testimony before the world. And so, uh, we don't, we don't surprise if we don't, if we're not able to cash in, if, we, if we're not, we don't have the peace and the strength and, uh, the joy of the Lord. Doesn't fill us if you know. And like I say, if you're looking for a, a a husband or a wife, and you're much more concerned with what they look like or how much money they're making or one thing or another, and you're not looking uh, because the Lord means so much to you that you're looking for someone who will help you be godly, and then uh, you know it's no surprise if you if that you know doesn't turn out well in some situations, right? So. I think there's an application there. there. There seems to be a zeal that the Lord looks for, and if it's not there, then, um, you know, don't expect much. And I think I've said this in, in another way sometimes when I've said that the church will be blessed in to some degree in proportion to what we pray for and how earnestly we pray for it and how much we work towards it. You say, well... Um, 
is that really in the text? Well, I think it's in the text, but um, I think it, it supports other texts. For instance, Romans 12.11, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. It seems to me that we're being told there that uh, the Lord doesn't appreciate us taking him for granted, half-hearted uh, effort to live life as if, you know, you got a religion over here, you got a church over here, but, I, I you know, my gusto and strength is going to be out uh, outside of the church, you know, in, uh, on my, in my physical life. In uh, Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might. Which I think is another passage that would support that. I'm, in my mind, uh, it seems like whenever I have heard that through the years quoted, and I'm sure we've all heard that, I'm not sure how many times I've ever heard it quoted in relationship to someone's spiritual life as opposed to whatever you're doing as a way to encourage someone to to do it and to do it well. And there's a sense in which we should. Whatever your hand finds to do, uh, do it uh, with all your might. Uh, you know, if, you're, if something's worth doing, do it. You know, do your best. But that applies first and foremost to the Lord, is it not, and serving him and, and, and growing in the Lord. Um, Did I not have another? Um, I guess that was it. Okay, I didn't write. The, I didn't write. Uh, oh, I didn't put. Oh, yeah, I did. I just saw that. Okay, no, that's that's it. Uh, yeah, those are two verses that I thought were kind of went along with this. Um, so uh, you know, we've said before that it's not unusual for Christians to know truth, but not live by it. You know. It seems like the king knew what he should do, but he didn't care enough to do it. Um, another verse I didn't put up here was Romans 6.14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. So we know that with our union to Christ that he has brought a regime change that we now no longer have to sin in that sense that it doesn't have, it's not a case like when we were born, a natural man can only sin. Now we can do what is right. We have a substantial liberty from sin's dominion, but it seems often that we just don't, don't care that much. We don't want to live in the reality. We claim to be Christ, but we don't really, uh, aren't really transformed or changed as we should be, or we don't work towards that, or we don't assume that, and we don't get up in the morning and say, I am no longer under sin. I don't have to do these things. I can serve the Lord. I've been empowered, empowered by the Holy Spirit to do that and to, to uh, pray for that. And I guess maybe one way I would apply that is whenever I, like I always despair a little bit when I hear a Christian say that that's just how I am and I can't change. And I've heard it through the years. And I'm thinking, well, you know, well, maybe you can't, but the Lord can change you. I mean, you're selling the Lord short. It's kind of what these last few chapters have been all about, right? Selling the Lord short in one way or another. And so, um, in essence, as much a denial of the faith as just outwardly denying Christ. Someone well said that grace 
may as well be a mere word and the Holy Spirit a theory and the gospel only propaganda for all we expect to get out of it. And I think sometimes that's how we live. We, we just uh, don't seem to really think that God can do what he, he did save us for. So either we are new creations transformed by the love of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, or we're just the same people we always were. You know, but I think we see, again, in our text, we see um, what uh, happened, the, the difference between those who are um, believers in name only and those who are truly been transformed. And you say, again, well, you know, is that really what's going on in our text? You know, I've seen it in some of these other verses, but that's what's going on here. Well, again, look at Elisha's words here. He's angry. Um, he's disappointed. He's saying, you could have had this, but you, you didn't want it enough, right? All right, so that brings us into verse 20, where he dies and is buried. And uh, another little interesting story here. And it would, I don't think it was buried in the ground, as we think of burying somebody, but probably was buried in a cave of some sort or a tomb, what we think of as a tomb. And so then at some point later, when when he was uh, had decayed, so obviously sometime later, uh, and so they're going, as they did often, they would bury somebody in the same spot because, you know, their tombs were not readily available. And so they, as they get, you know, opening us up, whatever it was, they see this marauding band of Moabites, and so they just kind of get, get a run for their lives, so they just toss him in and take off, and the guy um, uh, comes to life. And uh, so I, I'm hoping he was able to crawl out. I probably was. I don't, again, I don't think it was a hole. I think it was more of a cave of some sort. Um, interesting, um, I, I read that televangelist Benny Hinn, which I guess we all know, uh, reports that he visits the grave of two faith healers, Catherine Coleman, which if you're older anyway, you've heard that name. She was a healer back in the 50s or 60s, I guess. And then Amy Sim- uh, Simple McPherson, which I've never heard before, but evidently uh, she was the same principle. So he goes, he regularly visits their tombs because he says he, uh, he, he wants to experience the anointing that emanates from their bones. You know. Well, that's a good example of how not to interpret scripture. I mean, I, that, that's not what we're to learn here, uh, of course, but um, as I said, from the, the, I think that the, what we see here is much like with Elijah, first of all, that just because a useful servant is taken away doesn't mean that that's the end of everything. Um, and, and in both cases, something miraculous takes place. Uh, Elisha, after Elijah left performed some miracles here with Elisha. It wasn't quite as dramatic, but at some point, life is given from his bones. So things are continuing. That just because somebody passes away doesn't mean that God isn't going to work and, and do has things to do. So that's always good. It brings comfort to us to know that no matter how greatly blessed we were by somebody uh, and they've gone and be home with the Lord, yet God's still with us. God's still working through us. Un- unfortunately, we don't. We have at this point, of course. I think, as we kind of indicated with Elijah, the 
end was in sight, that the end was inevitable at this point. And so nobody takes Elisha's place to do miracles. The miracles are coming to an end. There were other uh, prophets after Elisha, uh, Amos and Hosea and uh, I want and Obadiah, I believe. These were prophets who were give, sent at this time and later. Uh, but we see things kind of coming to an end because it's really only going to be just a very few years and the nation's going to be carried off into captivity. Um, in fact, Second Kings really doesn't even talk about that. That's more a Second Chronicles deals with, more with that. But that the end is is almost near, so we kind of see things winding down. You might say. Um, so both prophets in their ministry, but death doesn't have the final say. There, there's victory, there's life, and and I think we can certainly see that in both of the, these accounts. Well, in twenty two through twenty three, we have the uh, word of God proven true again. Uh, it, it says here that, um, Haziel, um, is, that the Lord is gracious to them. Uh, he has compassion on them. Haziel, the Syrian, is attacking them, but the Lord, as he had promised, was going to deliver them, in this case, only three times, as it were. But, um, at the, in verse, uh, at the end of verse 23, it says, you know, he had compassion, he wasn't going to destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. Now, the question would be, is this speaking of when this was written, or uh, which would probably be problematic, because if that's this was probably written after, this had to be written after their downfall, and so that wouldn't make any sense. But the other possibility is that he's speaking as the Lord has compassion up until that point in the story, which is true. So in other words, I was reading that the term until now, every time in the Hebrew that term is used, it always is speaking of to the point in time in the account, not when it was written later on. And so the significance of that is that we know that very soon they were going to be cast off. Northern Israel was going to be cast off. And so he's merely saying that uh, up until this point of delivering Israel from the Syrians, God had kept his word and has had compassion on them to that point. And Casey, you know, that was, you, you look at that, you're wondering what he's talking about. So then it ends in 25 through 20, 24 through 25 where the God keeps his word, and as, as I said at the beginning, this is one of the things we keep seeing over and over again in these accounts, is that every promise that God makes, every prophecy he makes, uh, it gets kept. And in this case, it's not a prophecy of doom or whatever, it's a promise of deliverance. And so the Lord keeps his word again. So never mind that Jehoash is a calf-worshipping uh, Jeroboam clone, as it were, um, he's less than enthusiastic about the Lord's promises. Uh, the Lord comes through. The Lord takes care of him and keeps his word. And, and it's a pain, isn't it, not to live in a world in which many times we don't know what's true or not. You know, that's why, you know, when I 
you know, I guess we all have our sources, you know, when it comes to the news. Hopefully things that we halfway trust. And, you know, and I, you know, I'm talking to somebody and I, sometimes it doesn't take long for me to realize that their only source of news is, you know, CNBC or, or CNN or something. And it's like they don't have any clue, uh, or whatever. So, and it, but even, you know, I, I, I have searches, I'm sure a lot of you have, I have places, people that I trust, people that, um, have, I, I feel have been proven true for the, over the last, few years, this is, I'm just giving you an example here, um, but no matter what, you hear something, you, especially in our day and age, you're not 100% sure that's true, you've got to say, I'm going to have to check some other sources, I'm going to have to wait and see how this pans out, I don't know if I can trust this, All right? and it's in the day, and you know, and again, you know, used to be growing up, it probably was not as you know, as a kid, you're living an idealistic world. I'm sure that you've always been lied to to some degree by politicians and to some degree by the uh, news media, although I don't think near as much as it you know is over the last 20 years or so. But either way, it's nice to know that when I read this, I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to worry about, well, I'm not sure this is going to happen. I'm not sure this is truth. Is there other truth out there? See, no. I know what I read here, I can go to bed at night and know it's true. In the morning, it's still going to be true. Uh, I don't always know that when it comes to something I read elsewhere, right, or here. And so that's me, one of the things we want to always keep in mind here, that uh, here's a kingdom that hasn't been faithful for about 135 years now since the northern kingdom split. And yet God has never once done anything different than what he promised. And everything he said was going to happen if they didn't repent, it is going to happen. And so I hope that we base our lives, not just our future life, but our lives right now on the only source of truth that we have, and that's the word of God. The only source of, of real truth. There are other truths out there, but uh, they come and go. This is, this is the truth that we will lead to eternal life. And nothing will bring peace and joy and comfort like knowing that everything found in this book is true. Right? Any, any questions or comments for me? For your love to us this day, we uh, pray, Lord, for safety on the roads and during the cold weather. We uh, look around and see that some are not here. Lord, we know some are sick, and we ask, Lord, for you to watch over them and heal and give them uh, strength. And But we're just thankful, Lord, that uh, we are safe in Jesus Christ and that our hope is in the Lord and not in our ability to keep our word or to perform, but uh, only in the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. So we're just thankful for all the different ways you teach us that our God is faithful and loves us in, in a proper way. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.